This is the canceled edition of Taiwan Insider. Now, don't worry, our show hasn't been canceled. This week, we're going to be talking about cancel culture and the effect it's having not only on Taiwan, but also Hong Kong, China, and the United States. I'm Andrew Ryan. And I'm Natalie So. Before we get to all that, let's take a look first at some of the stories that have been on our radar this week in Taiwan. In less than a year, Han Guoyu has gone from winning Kaohsiung's mayoral election to being picked as the KMT's presidential candidate. Now he's taking three months off from his mayoral duties to run for president. Vice President Chen Jianren met with the Pope during a visit to the Vatican, Taiwan's sole diplomatic ally in Europe. His visit comes amid concern that China will continue poaching Taiwan's allies. The labor ministry is stepping in after a string of fatal accidents involving food delivery drivers. Two companies face fines for failing to report the accidents within eight hours. China says it's finished initial plans for bridges to two of Taiwan's outlying island groups, Jinmen and Mazu. Taiwan's Mainland Affairs Council says it's a unilateral decision and part of China's plans to absorb Taiwan. And a story that's gone under the radar this week, a new Taiwanese technology that can determine your brain age. How well is your brain holding up to the ravages of time? Find out in just 30 minutes. You know, Natalie, that last story is very interesting about brain age. Yes, I'm curious what my brain age is. How about you? I don't know if I want to know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, let's get to our word of the week. Okay. Are you ready to guess what I'm thinking about our show this week? I am. What do you have? Barack Obama. (laughs) Backdoor. No. Baccalaureate. Backlane. Backlash. Yes. Okay, Okay, we're going to be talking about some backlash against people and organizations that have been appeasing China for commercial interests. This includes NBA star LeBron James and also a very major gaming company called Blizzard. So some of, those are some of our big stories today. Excellent. Yes. Uh, you ready for my word? Yes, I am. Okay, here we go. China? No. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be too easy, Good guess. Right? Yeah, too easy. Choice? Yeah, Ah. choice. So I'm also interested in talking about the same stories that you're talking about. Um, A lot of people are exercising their freedom of speech, speaking their mind on a lot of different um, topics about Taiwan, about Hong Kong. And I think a lot of people in the West, you know, like to exercise their freedom of speech. And now they're realizing that they need to make a choice about whether they want to speak their mind or do they want to, uh, you know, worry about... uh, the China market and, uh, you know, future opportunities in China. That's right. Yeah. Faced with That's a choice. That's a big choice. It is a big choice, and a lot of people are uh, being forced to make it. So what kind of things are we going to be talking about in this canceled edition of Taiwan Insider? Well, let's start with the NBA. Recently, Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morey tweeted in favor of freedom for Hong Kong, and that got him, his team, and the NBA in hot water with China. China State TV canceled broadcasts last week of preseason games. Then one of the NBA's biggest stars, LeBron James, also weighed in on the situation. He spoke out against the comments by Moray. Now that won him some more fans in China. However, it resulted in him getting canceled by some fans in Hong Kong and elsewhere. Here's what he had to say. We, we all talk about this freedom of speech. Yes, we all do have freedom of speech. But at times, there are ramifications 
for the negative that can happen um, when you're not thinking about others. You know, you're only, you only thinking about yourself. So um, I don't believe, uh, I don't want to get into a, a, word, a, a word or sentence uh, feud with Daryl. Um, with Daryl uh, Morey, but I believe he wasn't educated on, on, on the situation at hand, and um, and he spoke. And uh, so many people uh, could have been harmed, uh, not only financially, but physically, emotionally, spiritually. Uh, so just be careful what we what we tweet and we say and what we do, even though, yes, we do have freedom of speech, but there can be uh, a lot of negative that comes with that too. Now here's how fans in Hong Kong respond. And Hong Kong people are really suffering right now. And now you come up with speech like that, we 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 are anger. We we are very angry at that. And people start burning his jersey. Like I run a social media page. People send me like video. They start burning Lapon jersey just because of his speech. So yeah, that's something. What's going on right now? Now, Chinese state TV canceled NBA broadcasts, but social media giant Tencent began streaming them online again this week. So I think the cancellation of the NBA could be temporary. Now let's move on to another incident. This one involves U.S. lawmakers. One congressman is saying it's visa blackmail, and Taiwan is at the heart of it. More about that on today's Taiwan Explained. In today's Taiwan Explained, I'm going to tell you about a high-profile case of visa blackmail and its connection to Taiwan. All right, Nally, you ready? Yes, I am. We've got 60 seconds on the clock. Go. All right. This week, U.S. Representative Sean Patrick Maloney wrote in the Wall Street Journal that Chinese officials told his staff that if he canceled a trip to Taiwan, he would be granted a visa. He called it visa blackmail. That means China would give visas to the delegation only if they canceled their trip to Taiwan. China doesn't like U.S. officials visiting Taiwan because it sees Taiwan as a part of China. Now, this is the first high-profile case of visa blackmail. But it isn't unusual for the U.S. and China to deny visas as a form of punishment. China has denied visas to foreign journalists from these media who have written articles critical of China. Fifteen percent of the members of the Foreign Correspondents Club in China have trouble with visa renewal. Just last week, the U.S. announced it will deny visas to Chinese officials involved with human rights abuses in Xinjiang, China. A Reuters report says China is planning to retaliate by denying visas to U.S. citizens with ties to the military, intelligence, and human rights groups. Very good, Natalie. <laughs> and that's this week's Taiwan Explained. This week on Hashtag Taiwan, RTI social media guru Leslie Liao tells us what's trending. Hey, Leslie. Hey, guys. Leslie, what do you have for us this week? Cancellations. All right. That's cancellations. the whole theme, yep. right? And I love how you left this for me because you know I'm a huge nerd. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Hearthstone is a video game created by American company Blizzard. Now, recently there was a Hearthstone tournament. One of the participants, his name was Blitz Chung, and he's from Hong Kong. Now, I think a lot of people have already been following this story, but here's a quick recap for you. After Blitz Chung won a match, mm -hmm. he was interviewed by two Taiwanese hosts. In that interview, he actually yelled out, Liberate Hong Kong, Revolution of Our Age. Okay. Here's that clip right now. Okay. <laughs> 
Now, following this incident, Blizzard banned Blitzchung from participating in any more tournaments for a year, and they took away his prize money. Wow. Not only that, but they also fired the two Taiwanese commentators who interviewed him after the match. Now, memes started popping up all over the internet, like here on Reddit. People were saying that Blizzard was trying to appease the Chinese government and that they were looking out for their business interests in China. That's Xi Jinping there, right? As right there. Winnie the Pooh. That's Winnie the Pooh. That's okay. right. And then <laughs> next up is my Leslie Liao pick of the week. This meme shows Blizzard and the NBA competing, tipping off for that sweet, sweet Chinese money. <laughs> Wait, but that looks like U.S. dollars. That does look like U.S. dollars, right? I hope the conversion rate is good. <laughs> This next meme is the Blizzard logo superimposed on the Chinese flag. Now, if you look in the top left corner, you'll see hashtag boycott Blizzard started trending like mm-hmm. crazy. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, this next one right here, people began using a character from one of Blizzard's other video games as a symbol for the Hong Kong protests. Her name is Mei, and she's the only Chinese character in the video game Overwatch. Now, backlash for Blizzard got so bad that they cut uh, Blitz Chung's ban in half and they restored his prize money. Blitz Chung, he would go on to thank Blizzard for their leniency, but he also urged the company to lighten up on the two commentators that interviewed him. The two commentators here, in fact, they did get their ban shortened to six months. However, one already said that he will not be working with Blizzard in the future. Wow. Wow. Wow, wow. That's standing up for Hong Kong. They're Taiwanese, too. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're both okay. They said they will endure. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. I heard a lot of protesters are planning to protest at their upcoming annual conference, BlizzCon, in two weeks. So we'll have to see how big this backlash really Americans. is. Americans. So it's not just Hong Kong right. uh, people, people around the but world. Uh, human rights groups are coming together, and they're going to lodge an actual protest at that event. I'm so glad that you brought this up uh, because I know nothing about the gaming world. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's an important part of uh, the reaction to what's happening in Hong Kong. So. I got right. you. Anything you need, sports, <laughs> nerd stuff. I'm the correspondent, right? All right. All right. So that's this week's hashtag Taiwan. Hey, do follow us on social media and leave a comment below. We'd love to hear from you. All right, this is a brand new segment on Taiwan Insider. It's called Who in Taiwan? It's kind of an experiment trying this out. And as you can guess from the title, we are going to be asking you to guess a person from the news this past week here in Taiwan. Are you guys ready? We are ready. All right, now each of them have a buzzer. Nally, let's see your buzzer. Okay, it sounds like the police are coming. And uh, Leslie? Okay, so what's going to happen is is the picture is going to slowly reveal itself on the computer as I give you some clues, and you can play along as well at home. Once you know the answer, buzz in, and then tell us who the person is. We only get one try, right? You only get one try. Okay. <laughs> so I keep on, like, chance. guessing people. No. no. All right. Oh, you once guys... we buzz, we can say it? Yes. Okay. All right, you ready? Mm-hmm. Ready at home? All right, let's give this a go. All right. Our mystery man was born in 1931 in Ningbo, Zhejiang Province, China. He moved to Hong Kong in 48, then to the U.S. in 49 to attend Harvard. But he graduated from MIT with a bachelor's and master's in mechanical engineering. He worked for Texas Instruments for 25 oh. years. Wow. Zhang Zhongmou. Who? Zhang Zhongmou. Morris Zhang. That's correct. <laughs> Were you saying the same thing? I was thing? thinking the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> Texas Instruments. That was really Very good. You both got really it so quickly. Obvious. I'm going to tell you the rest of the clues. Uh, today, he's one of the richest men in Taiwan. He's most famous for the company he founded in 1987, which was... TSMC. 
Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, biggest chip maker in the world, mm -hmm. computer chip maker. Also, he's been Taiwan's APEC representative how many times? This is the third, right? That's correct. And that is the news item from this week. Uh -huh. He actually uh, was announced on Monday he's going to be representing Taiwan at APEC in Santiago, Chile, November 16th through the 17th. And again, you guessed it correctly, this is Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing well, Corporation. Time. That's right. A tie. You did all the talking. So. <laughs> <laughs> and that is today's inaugural episode of Who in Taiwan. Up next, Taiwan by Number. Sometimes at the end of a long week of heavy news, I like to kick back with a beer in hand. Now in today's Taiwan by Number, we will not be drinking beer. However, we will be talking about drinking. Are the two of you ready to guess some numbers related to drinking in Taiwan? Sure. Okay, we're going to start off with a very important number. And this is not the number I'm going to ask you to guess, because I think you both know the answer. Do you know what the drinking age is in Taiwan, the legal drinking age? I think it's 18, right? 18. Okay, you're both correct. Okay. <laughs> we're older than 18, but... Uh... Now, the question I want to start off with today, the real question is, what percentage of all the countries in the world have the same legal drinking age as Taiwan? Oh, wow. I'll say 40%. 40%? Okay. I'll say 65. 65%. Those are two good guesses. Before we get to that answer, though, we're going to talk about Asian flush. Does this ring a bell with either of you? Well, you said we're not drinking beer, but do you have like some wine I could demonstrate it for you? <laughs> okay, so basically it's when you drink and then you have kind of symptoms like you turn a little bit red, mm -hmm. feel a bit nauseous perhaps. Well, uh, actually there's a study that found out that Taiwan has the highest percentage of people who experience the so-called Asian flush because it's more predominant among Asians, but it's highest in Taiwan, higher than anywhere else in the world. 47% of people in Taiwan are afflicted by this. So we're going to show you a report that talks about the science behind it and why people who get Asian flush should be very careful. Let's have a look. The Asian flush isn't just a physical response to drinking alcohol, it's an enzyme deficiency. People who lack the ALDH2 enzyme cannot metabolize alcohol. This results in flushed faces, respiratory problems, nausea, vomiting, and possibly diseases. Nearly half of the people in Taiwan have this deficiency. Many Asians have this enzyme deficiency. They have a hard time metabolizing alcohol, so they often don't feel well after drinking. People who lack the ALDH2 enzyme have a 50 times higher risk for mouth, throat, and esophageal cancers. A Stanford study found that Taiwan ranks top in the world for this enzyme deficiency. It advised these people to avoid alcohol altogether. According to the World Health Organization, in 2016, over 3 million people died from alcohol-related causes. 29% was related to drunk driving or violence. The rest were due to cancer and cardiovascular or other alcohol-induced diseases. Even low-level consumers of alcohol were found to have a 1.26 times higher chance of getting cancer than those who don't drink at all. So it is a good idea to think before you drink, especially if you get the Asian flush. Okay, before the video, I asked you what percentage of all the countries in the world have the same legal drinking age as Taiwan, which is 18 years of age. Now, Natalie, you said... 40%. 40%. And Leslie said 65%. Let's have a look at the answer. 
61 Oh, wow, you were really close. Very Ooh. good. That's pretty good. You're very close at that, Leslie. Mm. Now, look at that map. You can see all the countries in blue have the same age, uh, legal age for drinking as Taiwan. The maroon for the United States is at the high end, 21. But the countries in black have the highest legal drinking age, and that is you can't drink at all. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. Well, interesting. So we're going to move on now to a question about how much alcohol people here in Taiwan drink every year. Oh, that's and interesting too. For this question, I want you to guess how many Olympic swimming pools full of alcohol people in Taiwan drink every year. You mean collectively? Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's at least one. <laughs> Just to give you an idea, an Olympic oh swimming goodness, pool is 50 meters long. It's 10, me uh, 10 lanes wide. And it contains 2.5 million liters of water. So how many of those in alcohol does all of Taiwan drink a year? I know this is impossible, but... Um, 100,000. 100,000? Oh, that's a lot of people walking around. Okay. Wild guess. Two point... I, I'm doing a lot of math in my head here. Um, you know what? I'm going to say 150. 150. Okay. Two very, very different <laughs> guesses. <laughs> Let's have a look at the answer. 282. Oh, okay. You're closer. 282. <laughs> no, oh, I got that. That's okay. My math is not any better. It took me a while and I actually had a calculator. Now, just to explain that, so 282 swimming pools is actually 700 million liters of alcohol. Wow. If you divide that by every man, woman, and child in Taiwan, you get about 30 liters per person, but of course- You can't do children. Kids are not drinking, right. right. So it's probably closer to above 40 liters per person per oh, wow. year. That's a lot. It's about a liter, a little less than a liter a week. Mm -hmm. Does it sound a lot, a little? I'm, I'm gonna plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> plead the fifth. Correct answer. All right, now we have one more question for you today, and this has to do with gaoliang, which is uh, one of the most popular strong alcohols in Taiwan. It's made by um, distilling fermented sorghum. Sorghum is a kind of uh, grain. Now, usually this liquor has an alcohol by volume percentage of about 38 to 63%. Now, my question for you is, what is the highest percentage alcohol of any gaoliang in the world? 90%. 90%, okay. 85 85 percent all right let's have a look at the answer Ooh. oh wow 92 percent really high and this is made by Qilo Wei distillery which is located right here in taiwan wow well that's very interesting andrew and that is taiwan by number for the week well we hope you enjoyed this edition of taiwan insider be sure to connect with us on social media yes and leave a comment we would love to hear from you for taiwan insider i am natalie so i'm leslie leo and i'm andrew ryan see you next week
Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. Today we feature an interview RTI host Andrew Ryan did about inclusive art at the National Concert Hall. He spoke with accessibility consultant Sandy E about how they are trying to make art easier to access for people of all ages and disabilities. He tells Andrew about a recent symposium in Taipei exploring ways to bring art to people who usually have a hard time being able to make it to the concert hall. The symposium itself. It was very much about education, public education.、Um, we want to empower people who do work in the performing arts institutions.、Um, now, Minister of Ministry of、um, Culture, we do have this、um, policy called cultural equality.、Mm-hmm. And honestly, a lot of people do not know what it is. Yes, I was just going to ask you, <laughs> what is cultural equality? <laughs> yeah, so we do consider, like, let's say.、Um, You mention new residents,、mm-hmm. right?、Um, people who are from less privileged communities,、mm-hmm. people with disabilities. Oftentimes, we have less less access、mm-hmm. to the arts、mm-hmm. because of economic limitations,、mm-hmm. because of、um, bias. Like,、mm. oh no, disabled people don't know how to enjoy music, or don't need to enjoy music. Exactly, like deaf people, why do they need to enjoy music? Yeah, it's like, oh, they don't、yeah. hear it anyways, right? Yeah.、Um, so there are a lot of bias and also stereotype. It's like, oh, if you come to our our、um, performing arts center, it's gonna be too much on you, like、mm-hmm. health wise. Like my friend Ashley was told that, well, why don't you come here when there are not as many people? Wow. Like for example, during the weekday. But then, so it shows like people do not think disabled people also work, right? <laughs> Or would want to come with their friends on the weekend when their friends are free too, right? Right? Yeah. Yeah.、Um, so with cultural equality as a, a big concept, how do we make make it work?、Mm. So this time we have a symposium. We want to give people knowledge and skills. So in the in the morning we did presentations on okay, what is inclusion? What does that look like?、Mm-hmm. And、uh, my friend Sai Miyan, she came from Hong Kong. She did a presentation on how they do it in Hong Kong.、Mm-hmm. And I gave a presentation on、um, giving like just background information of how we think about access or lack of access.、Mm-hmm. And then in the afternoon, we have four workshops for people to explore the topics that they were interested in. Okay, so basically.、Um, What you did was you first had the workshops, and this was geared towards people who are in this field of of like people who work in theaters、right. or who work in the arts. But then you actually also invited the audience to come in and join you for a performance.、Um, and you, I think, did you call it a trial run or like kind of a, a first、uh, relaxed performance in Taiwan, so they could see how it works in action, and then people could discuss it and talk about plans for the future. Let's talk about the performance itself. Now, the performance itself was two、uh, singing groups,、mm-hmm. one from、uh, Europe and one from Taiwan.、Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a little bit about the performance and how you talk to the performers before the show to let them know what a relaxed performance is. Okay, so it was really new. So for many of my colleagues, they were also learning. And I, what I love about、um, the inclusive team that we have at a theater is like everybody's so willing to try as a group,、mm-hmm. and then they spend a lot of time explaining,、uh, 
um, to the performers and making sure that, okay, we are not trying to um, ask you to perform with lesser quality. Mm -hmm. It's very much about keeping your quality the same. It's about providing access to people who otherwise may not have the opportunity to be here. Mm -hmm. Um, what was the response of the two singing groups? Um, so after the performance, I talked to um, the group from Sweden mm -hmm. and then also the group from Taipei. Um, so for the Sweden performers, they were talking about, you know, it's a part of our professional practice. Like distractions, it happens. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. It comes from what happened like what happened and then who who is making the noise mm -hmm. it could be the staff it could be anything mm -hmm. it could be people flipping through their phone and facebook and all mm -hmm. that um so they were saying that it's a it's a part of their professional practice that they concentrate on it and they don't get bothered by distractions that's great yeah and yeah. then they were saying that it's it's great value to be able to do relaxed performance knowing that a lot of people who never get this opportunity to be in the public mm -hmm. enjoying a show in a grand theater and who uh, was the audience for the relaxed performance maybe you can talk a little bit about why it's called a relaxed performance too so for relaxed performance, we encourage people that if you want to move around, you can. If you need to stand up and even leave, and you can also come back. Mm -hmm. so That's like it's, huge, yeah, right? It's Usually at the National mm -hmm. Concert Hall or the National Theater, once you leave, you have to wait to yeah. come back in, or maybe you can't come back in. Yeah, it's very much about you know teaching the audience a new way of channeling in, mm -hmm. bringing your whole body, mind in, mm. like really paying attention to, wait, do I need to come up and I mean, stretch, leave my seat and stretch? Mm. Can I take a break and come back? And this is a real need yeah. for a lot of audience who have autism. Mm -hmm. One way that um, folks soothe themselves, maybe rocking, maybe making some sound, and oftentimes we use a very patho um, pathological point of view, like, oh, this is <laughs> abnormal. Yeah. This is a problem. You need to discipline or behave yourself. But we are actually teaching people to reframe, hey, this is the way that they are communicating and connecting with the world. Mm. So we want them to be so free to do that. It's amazing how much we are trained to behave in a certain way in a theater setting. You have to be quiet. You can't move. You can't get up and, and walk around. And that's so antithetical to the way human beings interact in normal life, in the, in every, in the, in the world. Um, so what are some of the things that you prepared in advance um, for the people that were coming to watch and partake in this relaxed performance? So we provide a stress balls. Mm, that's great. And anybody can take a stress ball. And, yeah. yeah. And then um, canceling um, headphones. Uh, noise canceling yes, headphones? Yes, noise canceling, yeah. Uh -huh. um, and then we provide a, um, a resting area where they can literally leave and then come back. We have water, we have like pillows and um, yoga mats. Oh, that's great. So the other thing that we also provided was scent-free soap. Oh, interesting. Why was that? A lot of people have allergy, and if you smell strong, like perfume or lotion, it can trigger um, epilepsy. 
Oh, wow. It okay. can trigger a headache. Uh -huh. So it doesn't have to be like an illness that you always have, but you can be triggered by it. Okay. And we want people who have allergy to feel comfortable to come into the theater and like, hi, I am going to know, I'm going to be so relaxed that I won't trigger any of my allergies or asthma or mm -hmm. any kind of triggers. So it's a really safe space that you've created. Yeah. And what about the lights? Were the lights on during the performance, the, uh, the theater lights? So usually we turn off the lights in the audience seating mm -hmm. area, but then we keep it um, like 30%. Mm -hmm. So for people who do want to be able to leave the room, they can, mm -hmm. and then they can come back. Um, so how did it go? Um, so, so many parents were like, we have never been here before. Mm. It's just, it was never an option. The first time maybe even walking into the National Concert Hall for yeah. some of them. Um, so my colleague, when she reached out to um, an organization, um, they serve people with multiple disabilities. They were like, hey, we have a show and we want to encourage people to be themselves. They can make noises. And they were like, are you sure? <laughs> Is this for real? Is this a prank call? Yeah, right. I they mean, just I... couldn't believe it because they, everywhere they go, people stare at them like, yeah. what's going on? You're not disciplining your children. Mm. They're so weird. Mm. They should be in institutions. And, and at the National Theater, the National Concert Hall, mm -hmm. which is such a formal space, I mean, this is, this is really symbolic that they're willing to do this kind of relaxed performance. Yeah. And actually, it's a really important thing for them to do. Yeah. And I know that um, some people raised concerns about, wait a minute, this is not safe for disabled people. Mm. What, what, how? What does that mean? Right. The performers, they were doing um, choir. Mm -hmm. So it's all like vocal and there was no music, mm -hmm. which was pretty new to many of us, mm -hmm. regardless if you have disability or not. So it's acapella. Basically. Okay. Yeah. And then, um, so some people were nervous about, well, if this is like too strong for some of the audience. Mm -hmm. um, but for us, like, I'm thinking about, well, it is more dangerous if we keep on keeping people away from the mm -hmm. arts because of their disability. Mm -hmm. We are not making, we're not creating any space for people to make decisions for themselves. Mm -hmm. Even with like parents, they're, they're literally limited opportunities for them to enjoy arts with their children when you have a special needs or disability. Mm -hmm. And what we can do as an arts institution is about providing options. Mm -hmm. And these, th this is the type of options that we want people to participate in. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about um, how the audience responded? Did anybody need to get up and walk around? Uh, did anybody have to leave? Like, wh what was your observation of the audience? Um, so I told people that, you know, like, you can actually walk around, and I did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because part of my job, I wanted to be able to kind of, like, stand back and see, okay, what's going on? Um, and kind of observe the interactions. Mm -hmm. So I noticed like um, with people with disabilities, a couple of people got really into it and then they want to move around, they want to... Make noise, some yeah. people make noise, I think. Um, yeah. And then I think it was their either caregiver or their family members would be like smacking. Oh, no, no. <laughs> yeah, because they're so used to it. And even though like we told them like, oh no, it's all right, it's all yeah. right. But they're like, okay, shh, mm. don't do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and, I, and somebody had to also leave as well, I heard. Yeah. Some, or yeah. somebody made the decision to bring their child out of the theater. Right, right. Were you able to talk with them? 
Yeah, I did. Um, so it turned, it turned out that her daughter was never exposed to this type of performance. How do we take our existing, existing knowledge and basically creating a better um, system of programming service? And how do we share this knowledge with other um, people in the field? Mm. So director Leo, she wants to focus on inclusive practice as the core value for the theater. So for her, it's not like a one-off thing. It's not just a, a, a test-run performance here or a, a charity event. But a lot of times it's charity events. Um, and I know that word kind of yeah, probably sends, chills word. up your spine, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, for her, it it's actually goes through everything that the National Theater and Concert Hall is doing. So mm-hmm. inclusiveness is not just a, a catchword or something that you can use once in a while. It's, it, it's connected to everything. Right. She really wants to have this as our ground. It's like a, this is our home base, mm-hmm. and it's going to be integrated in everything that we do. It's not like, oh, the Minister of Culture is telling us to do this right, right. now. It's not. That's great. Well, Sandy, thank you so much for joining us today. Again, I've been talking with Sandy Yi, who is the Accessibility Consultant for the National Theater and Concert Hall here in Taipei. We look forward to seeing more amazing um, events in the future and kind of more accessibility and inclusion uh, in more theaters throughout Taiwan. Thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. What do you know about Taiwan? I know who the president is. What about their local music and food? Well, hmm, what do you suggest? Tune in to Radio Taiwan International. Here at RTI, we offer the authentic Taiwan experience. You hear the sound of remote attractions, the local food, music, the lives of real Taiwanese as they live it. Visit english.rti.org.tw. Listen to the real Taiwan. the RTI time machine. Today's time traveler is John Van Trieste and the destination Kaohsiung 1814. During Taiwan's centuries under the rule of imperial China, people left their mark on the world in a number of ways. Over these two odd centuries, Pirates and rebels stirred up enough trouble to have their names recorded in the history books, while wealthy merchants have left their names behind in the mansions and gardens they've given to us. But for most people during these centuries, the respectable way to get ahead and leave a legacy was through a series of tests, Imperial China's notoriously competitive civil service exams. For all who took part, the goal was to join the ranks of the empire's official elite. 
Though Taiwan was out on the edge of the empire and only produced a handful of scholars that made it to the top, there was no shortage of people looking to get the education they'd need to try at least the local or provincial tests. For people looking to prepare for these exams, local academies were the place to go. These schools taught the Confucian classics, the core texts that exam takers would need to learn to quote from and interpret just to stand a chance. The schools also instructed students in the strict forms of writing that they would be judged on. One of these schools, the Fengyi Academy, was founded in what's now the city of Kaohsiung, and it has stood there for 200 years. It's now a historic site under the stewardship of the Kaohsiung city government. To learn more about this academy and how the exam system worked, we're talking today with Huang Youlu from the local Bureau of Cultural Affairs. What were students taught and how? What could they hope to gain from success in this grueling contest? And what became of academies like this one when the entire system was abolished? These are some of the questions we'll be tackling today. The Fengyi Academy was founded in 1814. This was one of two academies in the area. It was built to replace an older academy that had been destroyed in a rebellion many years before. The local gentry all pitched in with donations. The academy is a traditional one-story compound with slanted red-tiled roofs, sweeping swallowtail eaves, and open courtyards in between the different wings. Where did the students come from? Were there any requirements for admission? Mr. Huang says that two kinds of students came here. The first kind had successfully completed the local exams and were looking to perfect their skills so they could move up to the next rung on the ladder, the provincial exam. Many of these students might have dreamed of making it all the way to the top to the brutal empire-wide exams held at the imperial capital. The other kind of student was an ordinary person looking to get started with local tests. They'd have had some rudimentary education, and they would also have to have come from reasonably well-off families, because preparing for these exams was a full-time endeavor. It wasn't a system that guaranteed success either, as many unsuccessful candidates found out after decades of preparation. But Mr. Huang says that students here did have access to a kind of scholarship, so it didn't take huge wealth to have a shot at studying here. Instructors here would give lectures on the core curriculum, the ancient four classics and five books of Confucianism. They'd also teach students how to interpret these texts in the approved orthodox way. There would be plenty of memorization. But there was a lot of writing to do as well. In addition to memorizing, students would also have to practice imitating the writing style of successful scholars. The format of the exams changed many times over the centuries they were held, but Mr. Huang says that at this late date, towards the end of their history, the format had settled down like this. There were essays on the main classics, poetry questions, and policy questions. It wasn't enough just to answer the questions, though. The rules of style were rigid. Essays on the classics had to follow the notorious eight-legged essay format. The rules were standardized, giving a neat rubric for grading exam sheets. But the rules were also arbitrary, and they were absolute. 
A stray character or poor turn of phrase was enough to ruin everything. The so-called eight legs. Intro, receiving the topic, opening discussion, legs one, two, three, and four, and the conclusion all had to be mastered along with the conventional style. Famous answers were collected and printed. Two well-known answers that students from this time might have studied were on the following topics: When the people have enough, how can only the ruler have too little? And the topic: The people are the most valuable. Obviously, there was a lot to cover. And monthly practice tests at the academy whipped students into shape. The memorization, the endless copying, and the academy rules probably made this whole process very unpleasant, even for gifted students. And the exams themselves were torture. But elite status, prestige, and power were yours if you came out at the very top. Mr. Huang says that even those who passed only lower levels of the exams still gained certain privileges. He said these included not having to kneel down when coming across officials. With privilege and honor growing with rank, it's no wonder that people prayed for good luck on these exams. There were multiple gods associated with learning and credited with giving their worshippers better marks. Academies like Fengyi were bound to have a shrine to these gods, and sure enough, Fengyi does. Inside, Mr. Huang says, are Wenchang Dijun, the god of learning. Also worshipped were Zhu Xi, a famous scholar from even further back in history, as well as Kui Xing, god of exams. It wasn't all strictly book learning, though. If you weren't academically gifted, there were still other ways of getting official jobs. Mr. Huang says that the Fengyi Academy hosted both the local written exams and another kind of exam, one that tested physical skills. This was the military exam. Applicants were tested on lifting heavy stones. There was archery, both stationary and mounted, as well as sword fighting. You couldn't get away completely from books, though. The exam also tested knowledge of ancient military manuals to show that applicants could strategize too. The two academies in the Gaoxiong area did produce some decent scholars. However, Mr. Huang says that unlike the area's other school. Students from the Fengyi Academy only seem to have reached the provincial level of exams, but even if some of Fengyi students had made it to the top, there wouldn't have been many. Very few Taiwanese challengers passed the top-level exams at the imperial capital. Taiwanese exam takers would never get a chance to improve. By then, academies like Fengyi were in their last years of operation. The entire exam system would soon disappear into history for good. In mainland China, the exam system was abolished in favor of Western-style schooling in 1905, but in Taiwan, the end came a decade earlier. In 1895, Japan took Taiwan as a colony, and the Japanese authorities did away with these exams, replacing them with Western-style schools of their own. For years, the Fengyi Academy served other purposes. It was used as a Japanese army hospital, and later on, it was used as housing. 
but its fine architecture and historic importance made this too sad of a fate for people to accept forever. In 1985, the old academy was declared a historic site, and Kaohsiung City's Culture Department has since taken over the management rights. After a few years of relocating residents and tearing down new structures, the buildings are back to their 19th century best. The old academy is now open to visitors, a place where local people can learn about the dreams of social climbing their ancestors cherished 200 years ago. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another Journey Through Time. This is Taiwan Explained, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. In today's Taiwan Explained, I'm going to tell you about a high-profile case of visa blackmail and its connection to Taiwan. All right, now are you ready? Yes, I am. We've got 60 seconds on the clock. Go. All right. This week, U.S. Representative Sean Patrick Maloney wrote in the Wall Street Journal that Chinese officials told his staff that if he canceled a trip to Taiwan, he would be granted a visa. He called it visa blackmail. That means China would give visas to the delegation only if they canceled their trip to Taiwan. China doesn't like U.S. officials visiting Taiwan because it sees Taiwan as a part of China. Now, this is the first high-profile case of visa blackmail. But it isn't unusual for the U.S. and China to deny visas as a form of punishment. China has denied visas to foreign journalists from these media who have written articles critical of China. Fifteen percent of the members of the Foreign Correspondents Club in China have trouble with visa renewal. Just last week, the U.S. announced it will deny visas to Chinese officials involved with human rights abuses in Xinjiang, China. A Reuters report says China is planning to retaliate by denying visas to U.S. citizens with ties to the military, intelligence, and human rights groups. Very good, Natalie. <laughs> and that's this week's I Want to Explain. Ryan and Ellen Chu as they sample their way through Taiwan's culinary delights. Andrew, I thought we said no more intestines. <clears throat> That's on Feast Meets West every Saturday, only on Radio Taiwan International, radio for refined palates. What do you know about Taiwan? I know who the president is. What about their local music and food? Well, hmm, what do you suggest? Tune in to Radio Taiwan International. Here at RTI, we offer the authentic Taiwan experience. You hear the sound of remote attractions, the local food, music, the lives of real Taiwanese as they live it. Visit english.rti.org.tw 
Listen to the real Taiwan. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. Thank you.